0: Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week which is sort of like our Christian, cosmopolitan, grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them. For the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by David Zahl and Charlotte Getz to talk about the contents of another weekends. But first, I had the privilege this week of sitting down with Jeffrey Hansen. Jeff is the research associate in the program for integrative knowledge and in human flourishing at Harvard University's Institute for Quantitative Social Science and the author of Kierkegaard. And the life of faith, the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious in fear and trembling. I give you Jeffrey Hansen. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. So, first of all, we already talked about, and our listeners will never hear it, but we talked about the cover of your book, which is lovely. How'd you, you told me, could you tell our listeners how you came across the cover? Not that you can judge a book by its cover, but but this is inviting
1: yeah so the cover cover image is one i got to select and uh, i chose it as a bit of a tribute to my wife because the painting is by jan lievens who was a dutch painter born a little bit uh before rembrandt in the same city of leiden in the netherlands and uh, he was active as a child prodigy before rembrandt's career even got started and at the time uh lievens was judged the better painter by many experts um but that Image is one that doesn't get used very much. A lot of Kierkegaard books tend to recycle the same imagery over and over again. So I I wanted to use Levin's version of the uh, Abraham and Isaac story, and especially because this is uh, this is really the moment after the reconciliation between them, which I think echoes some of the ways in which I read the the Abraham story in Fear and Trembling. So I thought it was an appropriate choice on a couple of different levels.
0: So you have a lot to say about Kierkegaard that I think is really interesting and. Let me confess a moment of personal insecurity. I always feel like uh, I'm the guy that should know more about Kierkegaard than I do, and I know very little. I've only read a little bit. And so I actually talked to a friend of mine who's a pastor, and she said, funny, you should call me. Ask him why Kierkegaard matters to my life and my congregants.
1: So mm. go. Wow. That's a great that's a great question. I, mean, I think that he ought to matter for the congregants because he gives us uh, probably one of the most thoroughgoing uh, Christian interpretations of human existence. Uh, he was he was very deeply informed by uh, revelation, especially in the sort of Lutheran reception of uh, the revelation of Christ. And so he thinks philosophical categories through with a, an extraordinary um, uh, thoroughness um, from a specifically Christian point of view and uses that to challenge a great many of the kind of um, philosophical pieties of his day. Some of which remain with us and some of which I think he was the first to really open his eyes to in terms of, say, um, the beginnings of modern mass media, the beginnings of journalism and the crafting of public opinion. Um, And these things he viewed as idolatrous and abstract entities that he lived at a time when he was able to see at their very inception. Uh, So he was probably one of the most uh, original and incisive critics of the kind of groupthink uh, that we now really are still very much with, perhaps even even more deeply in the grip of uh, things like mass media or uh, public opinion. And uh, those things were important to him at the time that he saw them beginning to develop uh, in the modern West. And they're, as I say, they're very much with us now. And I think they still pose a challenge to someone who's trying to live faithfully as a, as a Christian disciple.
0: So I'm uh, reading a book right now by Tomasz Halik and I just I was just told it's Tomasz Halik not Thomas Halik that I used to how I used to pronounce it. And he says this and tell me you know if you think this is on point or not. The path that Kierkegaard discovered consists in the philosophical and psychological analysis of the human experience of faith, both rough and smooth of the experience of self-transcendence, of the courage to step into the inscrutable cloud of mystery, determined not to swerve from the abyss before which reason suffers the vertigo and often retreats cautiously into the bushes of its Mm. objections and self-justification. We Mm. ought not not to abandon the path of religious thinking that Kierkegaard discovered just because it doesn't lead to the security of ready-made answers. Mm. Disciples of Jesus might not be frightened to walk upon the water. They must not fear the abyss of questions that is not crossed by any bridges of definite answers.
1: Yeah, I think that is, uh, you know, a largely sound reading. Um, the spirit of that is is indeed accurate. Um, Kierkegaard is trying to um, imbue the religious life with that sense of adventure, right? And that comes in a way necessarily with risk. Um and in a fashion that in some ways you know i want to say um you know we 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 often sort of think leads to something um, gloomy or something self-denying but i think for kierkegaard that this is the joyful path too right it's just that you know there can be no joy without risk or without passion right and so um i think he thinks that there are there is a security in faith of a sort but it's not the sort that's purchased by Metaphysical certainties, right? You know, it it couldn't be. In the same fashion, though, and I think he often, you know, draws these analogies that are pretty easy to understand. uh, In the same fashion that something like, you know, marriage um, has to involve a certain amount of risk and passion um, and and cannot be a matter of metaphysical certainty, right? There can be no proof that you should marry so and so, right? You know, that's a risk that you take, right? And without that risk and without that passionate commitment, not only is it not a marriage, it's also not any fun. You know, it's not uh, it doesn't have those sort of rewards that necessarily come with uh, a certain amount of risk and uncertainty and, and staking yourself on something, right. Um, You know, investing uh, completely your own self in something like that is required. Um, And the rewards, and I think Kierkegaard thinks there are rewards in the life of faith. um, They're not well defined at first, and they may not be of exactly the sort that we imagine. Uh, Kierkegaard often cites Matthew, chapter 16, chapter 19, um, a lot of the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, you know, you think of the passage where Peter says, Look, we've we've left everything, right, you know, to follow you. Um, what's in it for us? You know, what it, it sounds like there's nothing here but but um uh grim death, you know, at the end of this march. Um and Jesus says, Look, anyone who's left behind brothers and sisters or mothers and fathers will receive back a hundredfold. Um, you know, we're not really sure what that means. I think oftentimes Kierkegaard would say, you know, there is a reward to the life of faith. There are rewards to things that cost us uh, or that involve um, that, that have to be embraced only in risk and passion. But what those rewards are is not often easy to see before we actually receive them.
0: Is it, it it can only be descriptive, not prescriptive. Like the rewards of the life of faith. You can't say, Hey, if you do this, then you'll get this. It's only, Descript, it's a descriptive state rather than a prescriptive axiom.
1: Yeah, or if you, you know, I think I think the the crucial thing is that yeah, with the the shape of our expectations is going to change, right? Um, in the same way that the shape of our expectations about marriage changes, right? I mean, we might imagine, oh, you know, this will be great. I'll get benefit A, B, or C out of it. Um, and maybe you get A, right? But then you get Y and Z too, and you didn't necessarily see those things coming. Um. That's what I think is the key ingredient for him is that there's, there's, uh, there's an element of surprise, right, to the life of faith that, um, that is unanticipatable. Um, he talks, for example, about the rich young ruler, right? You know, Jesus says, I read this actually as a, as a, as a terrific example of what he means by the teleological suspension of the ethical, right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, you gotta keep the law. And he says, well, I've kept the law right? He says, well, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Um, and then he goes away, right? Um, because he can't, he can't muster that faith, right? So he's living ethically, right? He's living according to the law, right? He's following all the rules, but, um, something more extravagant is required. Something more personal is required.
0: Yeah. When you say teleological suspension of the ethical yeah. for our listeners who are not, um, mm-hmm. geeks like you and me, I mean, like, <laughs> like, mm. I mean, you're, you're saying like, Hey, sometimes your own, Ethic, what you view as the good life yes. has to be put on hold so you can get a vision of the whole life
1: yeah very much so i mean in problem problem 1 of fear and trembling is devoted to this question and it's a it's a 5 dollar word right the teleological suspension of the ethical what is that supposed to mean my sense of what's involved there is is indeed something just like what we see in the rich young ruler where yeah the vision the vision that you have of what the complete life looks like has got to be broken open from outside, right? Um and and in a way that only you can do, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't say, "Okay, listen up everyone, you know, I want you all to sell everything you have and give it away to the poor." I mean, this doesn't really seem to be like a rule that everyone is supposed to follow. This seems to be something that this young man needs to hear, right? This seems to be something that he's called to do. Do you think
0: it do you think it's a question it's a, it's a question that should have provoked a question and instead the rich young ruler gave an answer, okay, I'm out. <laughs> like, yeah. I, Maybe because Jesus then follows up by, well, anything's possible. Anybody can be saved. So is, is, is some of the life of faith where things go wrong for people mm. that like Jesus offers us a question that's a grace question mm. and we respond with a legalistic answer and shut off the dialogue when maybe it's grace upon grace question rubbing up yeah. against question.
1: And speaking, to use the language of questions and answers, I mean, I think in some ways, um, as I've put this in other other contexts, um, I think sometimes what we get is is we get in the answer itself from Jesus, we get the question that we didn't know we were asking or that we were supposed to be asking, right? We have these predetermined ideals, right? We have these visions for what we're supposed to be or what our lives are supposed to be like. And um, and we find those things challenged, right? We find those things put to the test, sometimes just by the realities of life. Right. Um, Most often, I would say by our own sinfulness. Right. So that we have this idea of who we want to be morally speaking and our own sin ruins that. Right. And so um, in the in the the graced answer, or the provocation uh, to accept grace comes in a sense, you know, the question that I was supposed to be asking, right, or the question that I couldn't um, formulate for myself. Right. So that I get the reward and I realize um, that's, that's what I really wanted all along, right, um, without ever having known it, right? So I think this is Kierkegaard's explication, you might say, of, of when, when Paul says that he can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine, right? Um, you know, because we, our imaginations, our questions are too small and too limited. Um, and then we, you know, if we accept, as the rich young ruler could have done, right, if he, had, if he had accepted that challenge, then what Kierkegaard says he would have found is that he he got every penny back, right? You know, that that everything he gave up, he would re, he would be returned to him. Now, of course, that can't mean something like, you know, the rich young ruler actually what earns back the exact same amount of money he gave to the poor. Right. But it means that he gets some sort of reward <laughs> that he's enriched, you know, in a new way or in a spiritual way. Um He's not, um you know, he becomes impoverished from the world's point of view, but he becomes rich in grace. Um and again I think part of the mystery is we don't know what that looks like, right? I mean the, the the rich young ruler doesn't have the capacity to sort of see what that could possibly mean because it seems crazy and it does. That's because it is a bit crazy, right? You know. So he be, he prefers to go back to following the rules, right?
0: Right, and, and you know, you think about the parable of the good samaritan, right? Where like it, the scribe says, I ask you who, you know, who is my neighbor? It mm. it says he asks us to justify himself. And, and right. it's almost like Jesus says, "I'm the Samaritan in your midst. You have to let me neighbor you before yeah. you can be neighbored It's just something like that going on with the Chung ruler in the sense of he's got to be like, like, Hey, I am your possession i am like it, it, it ambiguity is okay like that's going to be the life of faith yeah um it, you can't come to me with your punctilious observance that's right and, and, and think that you've done anything
1: that's right. Yeah, that's right. And 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 I think because ultimately, if, if I push, you know, what Kierkegaard is saying, even beyond the limits of fear and trembling itself, and I try to do this a couple points in the book, you know, I think that ultimately the ethical life that he's that he's placing under suspension is any kind of humanly crafted vision of the good life, right? You know, any picture of human flourishing that is uninformed by revelation. So, you know, that this this judgment falls on, you know, Kantian ethics, it falls on um, you know, pagan ethics, it falls on, uh, Socrates. You know, as much as Kierkegaard loved Socrates and admired him and thought that I think Socrates and Jesus were the two greatest communicators the world had ever known, um, you know, he still thinks that Socrates didn't really understand the true depth of sin, right? You know, that, that human beings could be in full possession of knowledge of the good and willfully, obstinately insist on doing what's wrong. <laughs> um, you know, but when that, when that happens, um, where do we go from there, right? What's next? And so, you know, we need our vision of the good life to be restored, in a sense, overcome and restored in the same, in the same gesture by something like the capacity to be forgiven, right? Um, and Jesus and Socrates are alike in that they provoke people to feel those limits. They provoke people to take action in the face of such a possibility. You know, the ruler either has to accept that and do as he's told, or he walks away. I mean, that's that's the choice, right? And they make that choice urgent, right? And they make it something that's our own responsibility precisely by being somewhat evasive and somewhat ambiguous, right? I mean, um, Socrates goes around asking questions, right? I mean, he doesn't have any answers. He doesn't give people answers. He doesn't say like, well, I'm a pretty wise person, so let me tell you what I think. He demands to know what you think, right? Um, and similarly, you know, Jesus can be uh, equally frustrating and opaque, right? You know, um, like uh, teach us about faith, right? Well, faith is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed out there, but if you plant it in the ground, then it becomes a great tree and many birds can nest in its branches. What does that mean, right? Um, these, the, the style of communication that Kierkegaard adopts um, from those two masters is precisely designed to um, make the urgency of choice keenly felt and to place the burden of responsibility on you. For what are you going to do? Are you going to accept the call upon your life uniquely, the unique demand that Jesus makes for you to do this radical, irresponsible thing that looks entirely unethical, as a matter of fact, right? You know, giving away all your money. Um, how is that, you know, how is that sort of tidy and bourgeois and respectable? It's none of those things. Um, but you either do it or you walk away and you return to, yeah, your life of kind of, um, of uh, moralism.
0: Do you think that on some level, too, like today it would be, or you know, people like for instance, we warehouse old people. And so mm. like in the ancient world, following Jesus would mean abandoning your household. Today, it might mean the theological suspension of the ethical is, hey, maybe I got to stay put and live a mundane life and find the grace in the mundane instead of having to live a life of religious heroism.
1: Sure. In fact, I think Kierkegaard is very keen to establish, um, and this is in line with his, with his Lutheran credentials, the fact that, uh, in some ways that's the most demanding path of all, right? You know, he, fairly or not, he had a fairly long standing kind of reservation about monasticism, right? About sort of the model, the medieval model of retreat from the world, right? Which he thought in some ways had its own kind of consolations, right? That's, uh, you know, if you're a monk, then after all, you must be really holy, right? You must be really religious. Whereas the real trick, he thought, was to um live in the world, you know, to 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 live like a monk, um, only to be an accountant, right? Um and so the real trick, as it were, of the life of faith is to um, in a sense, uh refuse any of the outward sort of trappings or any of the signs that might that might give you away as a as a as a religious hero. Uh, that the heroism of the of the knight of faith is um, conspicuously inconspicuous.
0: You know, I heard a Hegel scholar once lamentingly say, one of his colleagues, I think it was at Stanford or something, he said that. Um, and he he was a German Hegel scholar. He said uh, you know a colleague once said to me that um, reading Hegel's logic is like uh, taking culinary cues from Jeffrey Dahmer. And, uh, <laughs> So, but I mean, you know, with Hegel and Kierkegaard, right, we, the, the armchair way to read it is the either or versus the both end. But what, yeah. you, what your book seems to suggest is that like the either or is a step to the both end and that grace kind of, there's a, there's a, a transcendent move that these are, that's a false dichotomy.
1: I'm inclined to agree. Uh, I really think at, at one point in um John Milbank's conversation with uh, Slavoj Žižek he says Kierkegaard is the real thinker of the both and and I think that's right. I think Kierkegaard is uh surpasses Hegel on that point. And you're right that kind of the 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 CliffsNotes version to it, right, is that Kierkegaard's an either or kind of guy and Hegel is a both and guy, but I think that that is not. That is superficial. I think Kierkegaard is a thinker of the both and and I think for him the life of faith incorporates elements of the aesthetic and the ethical, um, within itself, right. That it's, um, there are differences certainly in the, in the way that the dialectic plays out, right. I mean, Kierkegaard thinks that the dialectic is driven by freedom, not by necessity, right. So he doesn't like Hegel's fatalism. Um, and I think that he, that he, this is very subtle in a way, but I think that for him the both and is not so much a kind of final resolution or a final overcoming of, um, the opposite's but as a sort of holding them together in fruitful tension, right? You know, that you you see this all over his writings. You know, he talks about the human person and the concept of anxiety as being both body and soul, but also spirit. And in some ways, it seems like spirit isn't a third reality, but spirit is simply um, the awareness of being body and soul, you know, held together in a kind of problematic tension, right? So it's not that spirit sort of dispels body and soul, right, or overcomes them in some kind of final resolution but spirit simply is the sustaining together of body and soul um in a kind of precarious in a precarious kind of tension yeah
0: and don't we have to get that out of our language problematic because i think i think it's um nietzsche somewhere says that like some pre-socratic at some point said there's a mind-body problem and now mm. we think of it as a problem. why is it just not a mind-body creative tension or a mind-body reality yeah. once you frame it as problem well now we got to solve it and it's what Kierkegaard is saying: yeah. is is don't try to solve it, accept it. Yeah, it's it's like uh, to trade on David Bentley Hart. It's the beauty of the infinite. Like the infinite is not a problem.
1: Yeah,
0: it, 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 you know it, it's a possibility.
1: And sometimes we talk about this, like sort of vis a vis. Um, I think it was Marcel who distinguished problem from mystery, right? You know, the, the a problem is in principle solvable, and a mystery is not, right? So, yeah, I think that there's a there's a sense in which, yeah, Kierkegaard is going to is going to counsel something like what you call that, you know, that kind of embrace. Right. You know, simply embrace the tension rather than attempt to dispel it. Um, And he certainly thought that part of the failure of modern philosophy from Descartes to Hegel was this sort of maniacal need (laughs) to render all things transparent to reason. I think he just he does not believe that all things are transparent to reason. And the ones that aren't are the ones that, in fact, are most personally important to me, right? You know, are the ones that matter the most greatly, you know, the mystery of other human beings that I love, you know, my children, my wife, uh, my parents, the mystery of faith. Um, you know, these, these are the things that uh, ought to matter to us most, right? And they're the ones that are most opaque in some ways, right? And, and the least open to sort of philosophical speculation,
0: Yeah, what is Jeffrey – Jeff Goldblum saying, the big chill? I forget his character, but he says, you know, human beings can get through a day without food or sex, but they can't get through a day without a good rationalization. And it sounds like you're saying – Kierkegaard is the uh, philosopher that says, hey, put the brakes on at the rationalization point and you might actually – experience something like reason or the rational if you stop your rationalizations this isn't anti-rational it's it it's the real rational
1: yeah that's right i think that would be the better way to put it i think that the, for him the real the real character of rationality uh, is simply more expansive than what got sort of um narrowly and parochially defined as reason in the modern period and in that sense i think he's he's uh he's a he's a good platonist right I mean, I think Plato also thinks that the activity of reason is one that's ecstatic, right, that it looks to em- embrace things um, that are not, in the first instance, um, obviously part of its own work or part of its own character. I mean, this is why he loves myth and story, because he thinks those things are not anti-rational or foreign to reason, but that um, they, they um, complete you know, what reason is narrowly defined is trying to do. So that reason properly understood is, in fact, this rather more expansive sort of openness to the to the way that reality really is, and I think Kierkegaard takes that view as well. I mean, I think he's it, it, it's less likely now when you read Kierkegaard's scholars that they will uh, attribute to him anti-rational or irrationalist uh, points of view. I think we've come a long way on that score, but there's more that could be said, perhaps, about the ways in which yeah he thinks that reason reason really is itself when it is um, not um, limited in the sort of academic philosophical sense that it was in the in the modern period in which he found it being talked about. One thing that I like from him about that actually is, is he talks about the relationship of love to self-love, right? And he says, you know, um, at first, you know, when we meet somebody that, that we're attracted to them on the basis of self-love, right? Because – there's things about them that please me right you know there are things about them that i find beautiful or that i find appealing um but ultimately what love needs you know what self love needs to do is love that person more than you love yourself right you know and if you if you do that um then in a sense self love is no longer the basis right it's been dethroned as it were um and you you find that you love another person more than you love yourself but that doesn't mean that self love is somehow um completely dismissed from the scene in fact he thinks that self-love becomes richer and more expansive as a result right because by loving somebody more than i love me then i become a much more attractive and interesting and expansive person right you know i'm i am morally transformed i'm spiritually uplifted so that in a sense self-love you know doesn't really ever go away entirely Mm. any more than reason ever goes away entirely when it when it confronts mystery but it becomes itself, right? It becomes itself, um, you know, I become more lovable uh, as I love others more than I love me, right? And so then in a sense, the the object of my own self-love, I become a more interesting and a more valuable and a more mm-hmm. um, open self, right? Um, and that's not to say that then myself is at an end, right? Or that somehow myself is gone now that I'm married to somebody. But actually myself becomes much richer and... and, and uh, and uh, broader as a result.
0: Yeah, so if somebody's sit- listening right now and they're thinking, like, you know, and I fall started with Kierkegaard. Like, I've read Fear and Trembling and several other texts, but, like, you know, my own education, it's one of those things that, like, it feels like I've, I have false started so many times. How does somebody, like, avoid the false start problem? And really, because I think, I mean, the way I read your work, I mean, you basically say there's that Kierkegaard tells us that there's, Kind of like a different way to go through life, and it's not anti ethical it's like Tim Keller says there's three ways to go through life: the irreligious, the religious, and the gospel way mm-hmm. and yeah in your book tells us that Kierkegaard gives us the gospel way when you mm-hmm. take God seriously, you take yourself a little less seriously. How does somebody stick with it to get to the point where they hear that in Kierkegaard?
1: yeah. Well, it's uh, it can be daunting. And I, and I think in some ways by design, you know, I mean, in the book, I argue that that fear and trembling itself is in a way is a series of false starts, right? You know, you get these four elaborate and lengthy sections at the beginning of the book, each of which sort of doesn't get entirely off the ground, right? You know, each of which is sort of looking to begin again in, 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 in a fresh way. Um, and I think that, like I said, that is partly by design. I, he also blends, you know, different kinds of communicative tactics, different sorts of emphases. Um, I think oftentimes to show us what their limits are. Um, and so that can be frustrating, you know, when you get to the end of a certain section and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure how that contributes to where we're going. And in some ways it might, it might very well be that false start. Um, and I think he's a thinker who, um, aspires toward a kind of holistic vision of things, right? I mean, he wants to get, he wants to get to a whole, but at the same time he denies that there can be any sort of systematic philosophical insight into the whole, um, so that his work then becomes deliberately in a way prismatic, right? Um, he often writes in such a fashion as to, as to turn a problem or a question to every different facet, you know, it's these, uh, he's, he's examining something from every conceivable angle and sort of turn, like turning a gemstone. Um, and each facet reveals something different that contributes toward the whole, but, uh, that, that never in a sense add up, or that sometimes leave us in a place where, um, we're left to resolve matters for ourselves, which I think he thought was a crucial process, right? I mean, he, he, he he thought it was a complete mistake, um, for a philosopher to attempt to resolve the deepest problems of subjective human existence. You know, the really questions that really matter to each of us as individuals, because no philosopher can solve that problem for you, right? I mean, nobody can write an abstract treatise about whether or not you should marry somebody that you're in love with. Um, that can, that's a question only you can answer. And in a similar fashion, I think he writes to provoke or to leave someone feeling um, a little stranded sometimes or a little bit at sea because um, he thinks he can lead you up to a certain point or he can make you see some dimension of a problem or um, can raise a question um, with some urgency. Oftentimes he even writes in such a way as to simply make sharper distinctions, you know, so that he'll lay out, you know, two possible answers to a question like Abraham is either um, a hero of faith, or he's, or he's, a, he's a lunatic, he's a demonic, um, and he needs, to be, he needs to be put away. He doesn't really tell you in fear and trembling which one is the answer, because nobody can tell you the answer except you. Right? You have to make a decision. So he can press the point right by making you realize you've got to have that decision made, and he can make you realize that there's a choice between alternatives and sharply delineate those alternatives, but he can't tell you which one you're supposed to pick.
0: What's your favorite Kierkegaard tweet? Like, if you had to say, like, 144 characters, Kierkegaard, here's the quote, I would put it on my tombstone.
1: Oh, um, I mean, I suppose that's a tough call. I mean, because so much of his stuff is is not as aphoristic as that. But I mean, I suppose the um, the, I chose the epigram for the book from uh, from his journals where he said the true religious existence is to be as if demolished for this life, but still to consider oneself blessed. Um, I mean, I think that captures sort of what I take to be going on in Fear and Trembling and in, and in much of what Kierkegaard wanted to say. Um, so I, I, I suppose I would, I would nominate that one.
0: I want to share with you my wife's two favorites. To dare is to lose one's footing momentarily. Not to dare is to lose oneself. And her mm-hmm. other favorite is to cheat oneself out of love is the most terrible deception Mm. It is an eternal loss for which there is no reparation, mm. either in time or eternity. Wow. And you are the research associate in the program for integrative knowledge and human flourishing at Harvard. My old job. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's, that sounds like the greatest job. Like, what are you doing over there? Like, what, that, that sounds amazing
1: is a pretty amazing job. It's a new program that started up here in the Institute for Quantitative Social Science just about a year ago now. And uh, when it was created, it was, it was, uh, it was at its inception, it, it started out very strong with a, a lot of generous funding. And so we've been able to um, really devote ourselves to research. So I don't do much teaching now anymore, although I was a teacher for many years at the college level. Uh, And mainly now I sit around uh, thinking and writing about uh, the philosophy of work. Uh, Our interest is in bringing together philosophical and theological conceptual resources with empirical social science research. So, And we have an eye to to looking at things that have impact on human well-being. Um, Work is the first of those uh, areas of study that we're going to be looking at for a a few years. But we also intend to look at family, uh, community, education, and other uh, major areas from both philosophical and empirical points of view to try to see what it is that we actually know about such areas, especially in view of sort of the current crisis in the social sciences, which you might be aware of, um, and the need, we think, to have social science informed by much more critical and, and more reflective and more historically informed uh, concepts and questions for their research.
0: The only thing you didn't mention was retirement and death.
1: That's <laughs> true. Yeah. But we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for for the second decade.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And your book is Kierkegaard and the Life of Faith, the Aesthetic, the Ethical, and the Religious in Fear and Trembling. Thank you for writing this book.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. And we'll have you on
1: again. Sounds good.
0: Good day to you both. We got David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird Ministries, coming to us live from Charlottesville HQ and sitting in for Sarah Condon. We got Charlotte Getz, first time on the podcast, but a big part of Mockingbird as a writer and friend, colleague, coming to us from Florida, correct, Charlotte?
2: That is correct. I'm currently in Florida on vacation. Glad to be here.
3: And Charlotte's going to... Charlotte's going to be a presenter in New York. We're very excited.
2: Yes. I'm so excited. Oh, my gosh. The countdown
3: is really beginning. Sort of, we're almost at a month out.
2: I know. We're I feel s- that gun sort of creeping up to my head. It's like, get it together. Me too. Yes. Trust me. So
0: excited. So excited. And we just can't hide it. Yeah. yeah. And tell us,
2: about you also, uh, in addition to
0: being a, a wife, mom, and Mockingbird colleague, you also are, tell us about your, you run Rooted Ministry, right?
2: Oh wow. I definitely don't run Rooted Ministry, but I am the editor in chief there. So um if only, my gosh, thank God I don't run it. I don't have those skills. But um so I we have a blog. Part of our ministry is a blog, just like Mockingbird. And um I'm just sort of responsible for getting all the content up there. And it's been it's been awesome. It's so much fun. Um I used to be a youth minister and rooted is, you know, ministry geared towards um sort of spreading gospel-centered grace-driven youth ministry. So um, it's pretty Instead cool. Instead of shame-based, fear-based. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is, sadly,
0: sadly,
3: there, there's a, a, quite a lot of that.
2: <laughs> I know. Well, we're pretty strictly about the purity rings, um, it rooted, so, you know, JK. She, she, she,
3: she makes light, but it's a really fantastic... Uh, ministry and cameron cole who also uh works for and liz edrington who are involved people i think very yes. highly of and if mm-hmm. if you or are a youth minister or you know a youth minister or you love a youth minister uh or someone who just simply likes to, is interested in ministry i think people should check out
0: or if you know somebody
3: running a youth ministry that's shame <laughs> yeah, and judgment
2: yeah, yeah. Like, hey, um, send them our way. yeah make a suggestion? seriously i, lo- I love yeah. rooted cheers to rooted Thanks. It's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to be a part of it. It's an incredible ministry. Speaking
0: of youths, let's do, do any of the youth you know use Yik Yak, Charlotte? Y'all, I
2: have never heard of Yik Yak. And I feel like an old like crony being like, what is this nonsense? I've never heard of it. But what a cool story. Um, well, I downloaded
0: Yik Yak when it first came out because I I knew some people who were our church who were younger and who were thought it was so cool. And I, just, I guess I just didn't have anybody interesting living around me. There weren't really any interesting messages on it. So I just <laughs> sort of mm. – it took about four minutes for me to become puzzled by. But, David, this Yik Yak has more profound uses and applications than I
3: thought. Yeah, Yik Yak, for those who, like myself and Charlotte, uh, are, are a little bit luddite when it comes to this, though. I, w- in my work with university students, I have heard about Yik Yak, and I've heard basically the first half of this article is what I've heard about Yik Yak, which is that it's an anonymous platform. It's sort of like a, a message board where you can post anonymously uh, messages, and it tends to, therefore, believe it or not. Where anonymity is concerned, it tends to attract some pretty awful stuff and uh, people venting and, you know, all sorts of uh, sexual content that's lewd and gross. Uh, But it turns out that there is a bit of a redemptive... Side to it too, or maybe you would call it the the light. The, the if the shadow side is the normal side of yik yak, there's there's another side. There's the light side here, uh, and this is was in enlightened uh, or spotlighted by Amy Butcher in the New York Times when she wrote this new. Uh, they did a Sunday review on. Education. We're going to spotlight ourselves two of those articles, but she wrote an article called "How the Depressed Finds Solace on Yik Yak." Believe it or not, see, it's got has got a reputation as being a bit of a cesspool. She describes one of her the students, uh, and you know, we've talked many times about the you know uh, suicide clusters that have developed in many um, academic environments, and especially really high achieving ones. And she talks about her uh, where she is in Ohio. And she says, the morning they found this student's body, I felt an enormous swell of concern for my students, who I feared might take greater comfort in anonymity than in the consequence of transparency. So she logs onto Yik Yak and she says, Gone were the posts about hooking up the size of breasts, the poor Wi Fi connection. Instead, a platform I've come to associate with the gutter of young humanity. More than sexual openness, but sexual degradation, lewdness, the grotesque, had blossomed with empathy, advocacy, tenderness. I've never in my life felt so sad, a user with the handle Umbrella wrote, like I don't even want to live. Staring at a razor, another user wrote, trying to work up the courage. But then another message, tell me your real name so we can talk in person. And it's going to be okay. This is awful, but don't make it worse. And if you need someone to talk to, mm. counseling services in the chaplain's office is available 24-7. And so it turns out that this mental health epidemic we're seeing in in the Country at large, but also on university campuses, the anonymity has uh, has afforded a bit of a vulnerability here and openness. And she says, "Yik Yak is often the subject of legitimate mm-hmm. concern and criticism." It's been shut down, by the way, out of you know, but also upheld free it, it crossfire free speech stuff. But this app and its users have also created an unlikely safety net beyond the lessons I can give my students in the classroom or out of it. Mining a smartphone app for their desperation can feel like the most Helpful, and least helpful thing I can do. I mean, talk about sort of uh, you know a subversive uh, use of what looks like a you know a, a terrible tool. I mean, maybe even Twitter can be redeemed, guys. I don't know, but this mm-hmm. is a. <laughs> I found it to be deeply touching, and um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I think mm-hmm. w- mental illness is such a, still such a taboo, and especially in a performance. Cyst environment like uh these high achieving uh undergraduate you know environments are uh there's gotta be a um just as there's a you know anonymity provides an outlet for rage it may also provide an outlet for um real um help you know and and uh, anyway what wh- where did you guys go with this
2: I, uh, okay, so when I first heard this story, I was thinking, you know, okay, I can only say this in good humor because I struggle with depression myself, but I was like, good grief. This sounds like, Mm. you know, tender for the, you know, suicidal or something. Um, But oh my gosh, how beautiful. I started, it started to remind me of um, a lot of what Brene Brown talks about in regards to shame and the power that like an unspoken, um you know struggle or secret or whatever can hold over a person and so like rather than seeming like oh gosh you know we're going to hell in a handbasket technology takes a new terrible weird turn it just seems sort of like a really hopeful thing that it you know at least uh y- these young people that are dealing with like very real pain um have an outlet to verbalize that again even if it's without mm-hmm. uh a face or their real name um it just seems like a. Ho- it yeah. seemed it yeah. gave me it's, a lot of hope really in nice a really to weird read way. About you know, technology um, that's
3: not like a, a doomsday uh, scenario. But,
2: yeah. yeah, I mean, this is sort of like we talked
0: about <laughs> yes. last week about the whole Benedict Option stuff and and the fear of modernity you know, in late modern capitalist society and stuff. I, I just feel like it's these things are all um, you know, culture has is always bound up with peril and promise. Mm-hmm. You know, and and God, you know, Karl Barth says that you know. God can reveal Himself in, you know, a, a flute concerto, a Communist Manifesto, or a dead dog. You know, some people think he's th- he's thinking actually Mozart, cynicism, and Marxism. <laughs> like, you know, it, I don't know, Bart's, I don't know. Maybe that might be overthinking his illustration, but but that just gives us. I mean, I, that, that that anything can be the instrument and be commandeered for God's reconciling, utterly gratuitous love, uh, even. Even and especially Twitter, Mm. which is my primary news
1: outlet.
0: So let's talk about how liberal colleges make people angry. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, here we go. While we're talking education, in the same uh, oh, section of the same paper, the New York Times, uh, an article by Marin Kogan, How liberal colleges breed conservative firebrands. Firebrands. Life on the defensive can curdle into reactionary politics. And you know, this is a very timely piece because uh, she links it with a sort of uh, um, Gorsuch uh, nomination in the in the, um, but also with what's that guy the guy miller who's trump's uh one of his um defenders or something what is he, Scott? he's like one of his chief
0: uh counselors like a chief special advisor and he the guy he he's like he would be like a great simpsons character cuz like when he goes on like the political talk shows he's just got this like Intensity about him, and he's like really young, and he's got this. He's like, the president will not be questioned. <laughs> he's not, you're like, you're like, like, wow. <laughs> he's he's pretty like <laughs> he's a pretty intense like character. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. he's just making it, it easy like for us now. Just... these days. The um, uh, but they talk about how basically when you're a student at a uh, left leaning campus, which is most campuses, and everyone sort of agrees that with that, uh, that it can um. Mean that if you're a conservative leaning person, you sharpen your critical thinking skills. And you know, uh, Jonathan Haidt has said this many times that it's, it's become much easier for conservatives can, uh, um, can tell you the liberal argument a lot more quickly than liberals can tell you the conservative argument on something. Um, it's just and It has to do with moral foundations, but it also has to do with these, uh, with these environments. So I'll read to you. In the best case scenarios, several Republicans now working in Washington told me being a conservative in overwhelmingly liberal places sharpened their critical thinking skills. It moderated some of their views and tempered their youthful arrogance. But life on the defensive can also foster a kind of ideological contrarianism that can curdle into reactionary politics. In other words, the prohibition, the law, can, uh, can polarize and can uh, – uh, most of the post-collegiate conservatives I spoke to felt glad not to be on campus right now. The incident at Middlebury College this month, in which demonstrators disrupted a lecture by the bell curve co-author Charles Murray, prompted a resurgence of debate in conservative circles about liberal students' intolerance of ideas they disagree with. But that debate also has a flip side. What is life on the defensive doing to the conservative students? Um, Is it radicalizing them, in other words? And it appears to possibly be doing that. J.P. Frere, a spokesperson for Senator Orrin Hatch, said that his time at Cornell more than a decade ago made him more fastidious about constructing my arguments and it made me more aware of what the other side of my argument would be. But there was another aspect to the experience. I think that it did make me dig in a bit more when I'd see how flippantly people would treat people with my perspective. And so that's the concern here, is also not just that this debate is happening in a one-sided way, or there's censorship, or freedom of speech, but we're getting to a place where people are being, um, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you polarize people? How do you, um, what do you even, what's the, what's the word? Uh, how do you make them into extremists or fanaticize them? And this is one way to do it, as we know that the, when you tell someone not that they're not allowed to think something, no matter what it is. They're going to want to think it even more, and um, and so the prohibition does not. It actually pushes it underground, and it it amplifies the offense or whatever it is, whatever whatever's being prohibited against. This is the the core insight of human nature, and it flows in the other direction too. I mean, just talk to the if you were talk to the beatniks in the nineteen fifties, if you're talking to you know the hippies in the nineteen sixties, it when the, the the law comes in uh it will um radicalize people and that is what we're having it what appears to uh be having and, and gorsuch they talk about gorsuch growing up in a different uh environment where he actually was really friendly with those who disagreed with him and they were they were good everyone was well respected and today that's very 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 hard to find apparently and so you know it's
0: interesting that's how uh, barack obama became the... He, editor of the harvard law review that he was friends with all the conservatives and basically they were like well we're going to get a liberal mm-hmm. uh, you know named you know because uh, the editor of the law review anyway because they there's more than that so why not this guy who like likes us and we can work with, like, Can we, we could have our liberal mm, mm.
3: well we're we're the this is one thing that i think is like uh, I I tried to write about it the other day in relation to what Andrew Sullivan and William uh, Dershowitz, who will be speaking in New York, I'm very excited to announce, talked about in terms of these these uh, political correctness functioning as a secular religion with its heresies and with its dogmas and um how it binds and blinds Scott we, as we've talked about many times before. Um, so I don't know, do you guys have an experience with this before where someone tells you you're you're absolutely not allowed to think something and Uh, You you find you you have less uh, ability to um, to sympathize with that with that other side.
2: Yeah, I mean, okay, so I'm going to admit just right up front that political talk is like I'm the person that's going to make really bold assertions and be wrong almost all of the time um, because I just don't know my stuff. But um, the thing and now I'm going to sound like my mom right now, because all I could think was like, if can't we all just listen to each other? It just reminds me of like, um, actually, I mean, I know there's a lot of good like law um, conversation here, but what really came to mind is this um, sort of habit that I think that we learn, I think, in situations like that where we get into these like shotgun conversations and it's all about having your next point ready before you, you even listen to what the other person is saying. Um, and I just felt like, gosh, how sad breeding people into, like I want to think the people at the highest end of our government can listen and change their minds, you know what I mean? Um, whatever that may be about. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm just simplifying here, but I, I felt like my biggest reaction was like, gosh, I wish that we could just listen um, to each other. and the And then the last line of this piece just kind of was like, I mean, I, I almost like laughed out loud. Um, uh, I want to pull it up because it's I thought it was like I thought it was almost funny um, where they're basically just talking about any, you know, let's listen to our poor, lonely conservatives because, you know, <laughs> they might be our next presidential, uh, uh, you know, advisor. So it's like, oh, God, <laughs> it's just so daunting. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, like when I remember so, when anyway. John
0: McCain picked Sarah Palin as his running mate, David Brooks wrote a piece saying that basically what he didn't like about the pick was. McCain is sort of a crusader and, you know, whether it's finance reform or other things, like he he sees kind of politics in terms of like moral crusades. And David Brooks is like, well, and that's not a bad thing, but like 1% of 2% of, of of policy decisions are like that. The rest are ambiguous, gray. Like so, the, that's the problem with like life. Is life is not very ideological in its reality and texture. It's more complicated. Than that. Same thing with public policy. Mm-hmm. We're talking about healthcare or education. Like you know, these sort of strongly ideological uh reactions. They tend to like. I mean, good public policy tends to be allergic to that kind of like uh, airtight. Uh, you know, analysis. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think it's interesting in conjunction with this. My own yeah, school, where I've studied, Princeton Seminary, invited Tim Keller to lecture and gave him a word of the Kuiper Prize. Now everybody, yeah, uh, freaked out because he's a member of the PCA, which has different views on the roles of men and women, and 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 again, I disagree with the PCA's views on those things. But you know, they're 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 not um, this kind of. I mean, they were they were characterized as really a, 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 like out of the mainstream as a denomination. And the interesting thing is. Mm -hmm. In 2010, I learned this from our own Adam Morton on social media. In 2010, they gave the award to Jonathan Sachs, who's not even a Christian; he's a Jew. (laughs) So, so this is you know these things are like these kind of the binding and blinding. I mean, the ideological stuff can really sometimes paint you into. And it works on both sides. I mean, I you know, I know so many evangelical scholars who were silenced. In, in higher educational institutions for, for really uh, positions that I think are not that out of the mainstream in critical studies and then become defined by sort of defending higher criticism over against conservatives I mean, it just happens everywhere and, it's, and it is sad and stultifying mm-hmm. so people,
2: wherever you are and admit that the waters around you grow. Accept it that soon you'll be friends to the bone If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming
0: More positive black like Uh and let's talk about uh my my newfound uh uh acquaintance, uh and person who I very much admire. Uh Melissa Phoebe says yeah. an interview in the in the Atlantic, which is wonderful.
3: <sighs> I mean what an essay Scott yeah. uh and Charlotte I hope um I mm. I think very highly of Melissa too now having that I think that interview you did with her if people haven't heard it they um you know, they need to go back and listen to it right now because she's so articulate and interesting and, and, and honest and just also just a beautiful, beautiful, uh, writer. I mean, her, her way with words is exquisite. This, uh, this essay, uh, is when, um, or at least it was titled when a writer's great freedom lies in restraint, when a writer's great freedom lies in restraint. And it's, um, they basically talk about, uh, in the intro, they talk about Melissa Phoebos, who's just written this uh, you know, memoir-type essay book, Abandon Me, that her entire working ethos is about willingly, even willfully imposing limits. And not just on the page. In her conversation for the series that, that The Atlantic's doing, she explored this essay by Annie Dillard, which has really inspired her to pursue only one thing deeply at a time. And while she'll always choose to restrict the total number of choices in her life, uh, the, S, the, uh, the phrase or the sentence the, on which the entire essay is hinged is from Annie Dillard's essay, Living Like Weasels. And it's this incredible line, a weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of the single necessity. Now I'll read to you what Melissa writes. She says, when I was younger, I mistook complication for sophistication or intellectualism or deepness or profundity. But simplicity is a very sophisticated way to live if you can manage it. I learned this most clearly as I recovered from heroin addiction, because I only needed to do one thing, just one, to survive that experience, and that was to stop, to not take heroin. It was so hard, in part because it required letting go of all that unnecessary, complicated, rationalizing ways that I had managed to maintain doing it. I had to let go of all that and just accept this one simple thing, and it was the thing that would save my life. It was the hardest thing I ever did, and nothing about my life would be possible if I hadn't done it. My life, and certainly my work, skipping ahead, is fixated on that experiencing of abandoning myself. The new book I've just published is about a love affair that I treated in the same way, where I just collapsed all my other concerns into this one place and just ran at it as hard as I could, despite its total lack of qualification to meet that insatiable need. Destructive as it was, that abandonment of self really taught me something about giving myself to something. It's not a question of forbidding ourselves from doing that. It's about selecting necessities worth yielding to. She really sounds like David Foster Wallace here. If there's a thesis to what I've learned in life, it's that pursuits that appear self-destructive or self-sabotaging are at their core often misguided quests to find comfort or wholeness or healing. Drug addicts get this reputation for being self-destructive and out of control, but the use of substances is an addictive way in an addictive way, is a more like a failed attempt to control. Addiction is an attempt to manage your own feelings and everything else inside you. And I think that's why I love nonfiction. Fiction is so much harder for me because of the great wealth of possibility. You can do anything in the world of fiction, and that immobilizes me. I freeze up with all of that possibility. This is what uh, Barry Schwartz calls the paradox of choice, I think, uh, when it comes to buying toothpaste, Whereas nonfiction gives a hunk of material, but it 's finite i can't invent, i can't fabricate. I have to use what happened or my memory of what happened. find a way to arrange it, to mold it, to manipulate it so that it clicks into a certain form that can communicate something to another person i 'm always wanting to solve that puzzle now I know i 've read a lot here, but the the final portion is it, i can't i can 't give up. Our first world lives are so marked by this glut of choice. Mm -hmm. We spend so much time deciding between television programs or breakfast cereals or dating apps. We could spend our entire lives deliberating over superfluous decisions. I think it's easy to forget that we have a choice. We can just apt out of a lot of that and we won't miss it. Think if we took all the energy we spend worrying about what other people are thinking about us or deciding what to eat or not to eat or worrying about money. If we could just consolidate that energy and relocate it, use it on some task that we really believe in, on our artwork or our activism or our parenting, on loving people as fully as we can. Oh my God, we should all hope for such economy of energy. We could do so much. We could solve so much. In Salinger's Franny and Zoe, Franny is obsessed with this book, The Way of a Pilgrim. It's about a pilgrim who's obsessed with reciting an incessant prayer, the Jesus prayer. Uh, uh, The theory is that if you repeat a prayer enough, it moves into your body and into your consciousness. It syncopates with your pulse and with your organs and with your blood. By aligning your whole will with the prayer, you manage to merge with something divine. I think that is a process like what Dillard describes of yielding in every moment to a single necessity. That necessity and the way you reorganize your life to meet it becomes a part of you, becomes a lens through which you see the world and all other choices you make grow out of that one.
2: So I may not be in good company and I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this. Um, That line from um, Dillard's book, which I'll just read again, is a weasel Lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of the single necessity. And I thought, obviously, like my mind went to, like, gosh, that sounds like this perfect picture of, you know, Eden, um, yielding to the perfect, uh, freedom of the single necessity, which is obviously just, you know, to be in the, you know, joyful relationship and company of the Lord. Um, but I thought, like, that, again, that sounds like Eden. And I love the idea of eliminating, you know, all of these, various things um in my life and i feel like i've gone through phases of that um and then obviously and then you know two months in all of a sudden i'm just swamped by you know the law Mm. of the bajillion choices of what to watch on the tv and what to do and who to hang you know etc um so i felt like you know yes like it's a a weasel lives as he's meant to and we were meant to live in this with this like hyper focus um but uh, you know again that might just reveal where i am in life but like i feel like i can't um, I can't kind of live up to that, you know, like in the fallen world, that looks a lot more like a fight than like a blessed yeah. yield. Yeah. I, I yeah guess, it's, you know?
0: Yeah. It's, a, it, it's an idea. It's the thing with all ideals, right? They can be, a, they could, they could be like, I mm-hmm. think we said this, could we say like, like all things they can either be, uh, they can help, build a theology of glory or one of the cross you know depending on how they're going, how we approach them um mm-hmm. yeah so you're in good company as far right. well i don't know you're my company i don't know if that's good company but, but uh I, I yeah i can't i can't say no <laughs> good about her writing and i, I do recommend the book abandonment script but you know i don't know why but it yeah. took me to this passage in frank lake uh and this is one of my favorite sh- past paragraphs um he's talking about dread and being split off from yourself and how it is. Basically, he, he he's talking about schizoid disorder, which I think we would call something more like developmental PTSD or something. But I mean, it's sort of an older term for it. But And uh he talks about how, how debilitating it can be. He says, this is so severe, a test that Kierkegaard warns that there is one danger of downfall, and that is self-slaughter. And then he quotes Kierkegaard here. If, if at the beginning of his mm. education he misunderstands the anguish of dread, So that it does not lead him to faith, but away from faith, then he is lost. The man who, holding fast to God, remains with the dread, which obedience involves, does not allow himself to be deceived by its countless counterfeits. Then at last, the attacks of dread, though they are fearful, are not such that he flees from them. For him, dread becomes a serviceable spirit which against its will leads him whither he would go. Then when it announces itself, when it craftily insinuates that it has invented a new instrument of torture far more terrible than anything employed before, he does not recoil. Still less does he attempt to hold it off with clamor and noise, but he bids it welcome. He hails it solemnly. He shuts himself up with it. He says, as a patient says to the surgeon, when a painful operation is about to begin, now I am ready. Mm. then dread enters into his soul and searches it thoroughly constraining out of him all the finite and the petty and leading him hence whither he would go and then lake says i know of nothing more important and clinically validated in all that kierkegaard has written than this
3: mm. Wow, Scott, that's beautiful. Mm. You know, I, I'm reminded of two things. Um <laughs> here, um first of all, uh, Charlotte, I 100% agree with you because I, I think that even in her own life, uh it wasn't really a, a choice or it, the the yield, and yielding, issues she was defeated and uh, by this um addiction right. and she writes about it so beautifully. Yeah. And um we we can look back at it and put it in sort of the um The the language of choice, but I I know what you mean. Like we usually fight against the yielding with Mm -hmm. everything we've got, and that's what—that's what actually what she's describing in a a different way. Um, So that's where uh, that's where my mind goes. I also my mind goes to uh, this documentary we posted yesterday by Kurt Neal called "Ask: Can Love Survive Addiction and Codependency," which is all about which is basically all mm-hmm. about um what we've what we've been talking about and the bunch of people who who yielded only when they uh, were about going to die uh if they didn't yield and so um or only asked right. for help when they there was no other option and i think that that's kind of i think that's that's how it works if people are at all interested in addiction or interested in codependency i really think they need to um they need to uh, watch that that movie um i also am trying to find right now um uh, father john misty who ethan is writing about in uh, this week's weekender who's just put out this new album and i don't know if you guys are familiar with him but he's this very erudite um obnoxious guy who writes songs about sort of our, our our current age and um he was talking about um he says that uh, – t- Josh Tillman, whose Father John Misty, says, people think the world of music is so great, and it's just not. It's so boring the way music is conceived and the declawed for public consumption. The pop music machine, he said, is categorically anti-woman. I know a lot of women in that industry. They were pitched an American narrative about success equaling freedom when there couldn't be anything further from the truth. And at one point in our long conversation, he said, Pure Comedy is largely an album about the counterfeits of freedom, a theme that resembles some of the Pentecostal injunctions against worldly pleasure and distractions. The real takeaway from religion, he says, is the idea that we're just passing through. Mm-hmm. And if so, and why not help people? Why not speak the truth? As a result, uh, Pure Comedy is like a secular gospel album. Um, the album is about survival, and I think love is the substance of survival.
0: Freedom's just another word for nothing less to, mm. left to lose. And if you lose your life, Jesus says, you'll find it. So, Well, thank you for losing a few minutes
3: with me mm. this week, both of you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. it was great.
2: Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The
0: Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson. It's edited and technically beautified by
3: Dustin Koontz. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.